And he sent a prophet over 2,000 years ago to God's people that had lost their way a little bit. And God's prophet said, come back to me. Return to me and I will return to you. I will come and revive you and restore you. And you will be a light and healing to the nations. I uh, uh, offer you a few thoughts as we begin to look at Malachi chapter uh, 4. And as we begin chapter 4 of Malachi, something hits us between the eyes that you might have spotted if you've been uh, reading carefully already, but if you haven't spotted it, then it comes and kind of wallops us now at the beginning of Acts chapter 4. The people are in an in-between time, they've known that God can move in mighty power, and they're kind of wondering where God is, and they're tempted, in fact more than tempted, they're blaming him. God, where on earth are you? How come you're not moving in power? like you used to. And God says very profoundly, very clearly, very deeply, very persistently, it's not that I've moved away, it's not that I've turned my back on you, but you've turned away. You've turned your back, and yet you're still wondering where I am and why I'm not reviving you. You've turned away, but, and it's the big but that goes right across the four chapters of this book, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. And suddenly the God, the Lord you are seeking, will come to his temple. He will revive his church that they might be a light to the nations and healing to uh, the people. And so as they get to the the beginning of chapter 4, there's this amazing promise. They're right at the beginning of chapter 4. Surely the day is coming. There it is. Can't be any bolder or clearer. The day is coming. And I don't know if you can imagine it with me. Malachi getting up and preaching, prophesying this message to the people. And he gets up and, and he begins this phase of his message. Surely the day is coming. And can you imagine the people so excited by all that they're, they're hearing over these three chapters and now into chapter four. You can imagine the people in response going, yes, Lord. Amen. Come, Lord, quickly. Imagine them shouting out in response to Malachi's preaching. A bit like you shout out when I say something you like. I can only assume that for 15 years I haven't said anything yet that's of interest to you. And I'm waiting one Sunday, I'm going to say something and you're going to go, yes. And so there they are. Surely the day is coming. Great cheer from the people because it's what they've been longing for. It's what their heart has been. But barely has Malachi got those words out of his mouth and right behind comes the next phrase which would have taken their breath away, taken the wind right out of their sails. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. A shudder would have run down their spine. Suddenly their palms were cold and sweaty. Many would be feeling sick. They knew this metaphor. These were Old Testament people. They knew this metaphor. This was judgment, not blessing. This was destruction, not restoration. This was disaster, not hope. They're right in the midst of Malachi describing the day that they were longing for with all of their hearts. Suddenly he describes it in a way they hadn't begun to think about or to understand. A day not of revival, but of judgment. Not of blessing, but of destruction. 
Mercifully, Malachi goes on very quickly to verse 2. But you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. A metaphor of healing and renewal. Much more like the day of the Lord they had hoped for. So what's Malachi saying? Malachi is saying on the one hand, the day of the Lord will be this day of great revival and healing. But on the other hand, the day of the Lord can be an awesome, judging kind of day. And he brings it together in verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Can the day of God's coming be great and be dreadful at the same time? Yes, it can. For some, the day of God's coming is a great and glorious day of awakening and revival, freedom and salvation, liberation and healing. But others, it's dreadful, bringing judgment. That's why this prophecy gets ultimately fulfilled at the end of time when when Jesus comes again. The New Testament is full of the promise that, that one day this world will not just spin forever out of control. One day He's coming. One day He's coming. And it will be a glorious day of freedom and healing, but it will be a day of judgment. When things that are wrong will be put right. When things that seem to be left undone will be brought together by an awesome God who leaves nothing that's wrong. Unjudged. This is not the first time we've seen this in Malachi. Malachi is not just thinking about the end time. But he's thinking about the way it is for the people of God. You see, when God comes, His coming can be about revival or His coming can be about judgment. Look in Malachi chapter 3 if you've got it open in front of you. That verse we've been using a lot, then suddenly verse 1, the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple Great, how exciting is that to know that God's coming to his church. But verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? That's not what we wanted to hear. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. It'll be a glorious day. But if things aren't right, who can endure his coming? If things are not right, who can stand when he appears? And so verse 5 in chapter 3, I'll come for judgment. The idea of a divine visitation which brings great revival and blessing on the one hand and great judgment on the other is found in all kinds of places through the Bible. We're just going to, this will be on the internet, okay, so you can can catch up with it. But this one, for example, in, in Jeremiah. The first time God comes, it's to bring judgment. They'll be taken to Babylon. The next time God came, it was to bring healing and restoration. One kings and two kings have similar stories. Uh, but let's keep moving on. Look at Amos with me. Uh, when was the last time you read Amos? Let's, let's turn to it, just in case uh, you, know, you meet Amos this week and have to explain why you haven't read his book. Uh, page 920. Amos. Amos chapter 5. And they're talking about the day of the Lord. And uh, they're kind of looking forward to it. They're going, it's going to be fantastic when God shows up in his reviving power. Isn't that going to be splendid? They're kind of chatting to each other, saying, what a great day it's going to be, blah, blah, blah. And God puts a word on Amos's heart, Amos chapter 5, page 920, and it turns the tables. Woe! Woe! You go, woe, when you see woe. Woe to you! 
who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? Why? Why will the day of the Lord be like that for the people in Amos' time? It will be like that because of their consistent disobedience. Because they were totally consistent in turning their backs on God. They were totally consistent in neglecting the poor and the widow and the orphan. They were totally consistent in messing around with their worship and offering stupid sacrifices that were all blemished, knackered old sheep and all the rest of it. They couldn't give them monkeys in a way. And yet they still said, Lord, we want you to come in your blessing. And God said, I'm gonna, if you carry on like this, I'm gonna come. But it'll be a different kind of day to the one that you expect. A day not of blessing of judgment. How do we understand God's judgment? Kind of think it's an Old Testament thing, don't we? And we're glad to get into the New Testament because it's a nicer God in the New Testament. Ever thought like that? Just me? Yep, thanks Bob. Just me? I'm the only one. Well, for my benefit, let me just unpack a few things about judgment from Jesus. Now, if anyone came to save, it was Jesus, wasn't it? And when Jesus came into Jerusalem, that passage that David read to us, why was Jesus coming? What was he going there to do? Give you a clue. He was going there to die on a cross. That's why he was going to Jerusalem. Don't forget any of that in what we're about to look at from that story. Open it up in front of you, Luke chapter 19, page page 1054. Because it helps us understand something about God's judgment. Because as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to die on a cross to save not only that city but the whole of the world for all time, he pronounces judgment on them. Verse 43. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you, the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Why? Because of judgment. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. First thing to understand is this. God's judgment always comes through tears. What happened a few verses earlier as he looked over the city... He wept. You say, grown men don't weep. God's grown man did. Such in his heart. It's the last thing. The last thing that Jesus wanted going into the city where he would die to save the world was for them to be judged. But their their, their intolerance to holiness, their wickedness, their deception, their, their abuse of worship had just gone on and on and on and on. And the heart of God is breaking over them. And he sees the city and it's too much and he weeps. It's painful. It's painful. God's judgment, secondly, is slow. The days will come upon you. How many days did it take for God's judgment to come after those words of Jesus? Forty years. Forty years. God's judgment is slow. God's judgment is slow. What's God like? He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, 
abounding in love. That's what he's like. That's what he's like. Sometimes uh, you read a passage perhaps in the Old Testament and you think God's incredibly harsh. You ever done that? Just me? Just me, okay. Make it. Sometimes I've read in the Old Testament, ooh, flip, that looks harsh. If you ever uh, gone to visit someone's house and a teenager is a bit stroppy, ever happened? Perhaps that's been your house. Huh? And, uh, and, t- and, you know, uh, uh, and some cheeky, smart aleck comment, funny but wrong, comes out of a teenager's mouth. Uh, and the parent comes down on him or her like a ton of bricks, grounded for a month. You go, flip, that was harsh. Whew, one little word. And what you don't know is that it's been weeks or months of cheeky, irritating, funny but wrong comments in your home. And the judgment that came was not just there in an instant about what you were immediately seeing, but it was the result of something that had gone on for weeks or months, even years maybe. And I want to say to you, if you look at the God of the Old Testament, and when he pronounces his judgment, you think, that's a bit harsh, he suddenly flipped. You haven't read the book. You haven't read the book. The most impressive thing, and I remember my mum saying this, and I don't remember much of what my mum says. Don't tell her when she comes. Uh, uh, but I did remember this. It was the first time she'd read the whole of the Old Testament chronologically in the order things happened. And she got to the end, and I said to her, well, what, was the, what was the thing that impressed you most? She said, the thing that will always stick in my mind was I was utterly amazed how slow God was to judge them. Does that surprise you? Read the book. Read the book. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. But he still doesn't leave things that need to be put right and done forever. Understanding God's judgment, it's very slow. God would much rather uh, mercy, not judgment. Hear the lament, if you, even you, had only known on this day. He says, even if now, on this day, as I come to you, you recognise my coming. Even now, after the years, the decades, the centuries of your willful disobedience, if even now you'll turn, you'll be okay. For the the moment, you turn to me for an instant, I'll grab you back. If you, even you, even today, had known, then I'd withhold my... Judgment. Uh, that's the story of Jonah, isn't it? Do you, know, do you know the story in the Old Testament about Jonah? See, everyone thinks that Jonah's about a big fish and stuff, and the guy gets eaten by the fish. It's not really about that at all. The, the story of Jonah is about God's grace and forgiveness compared to our wanting to hold things over people. You know what I mean? Do you know what happened? Jonah was told to go to the Ninevites. Sure, he ran away and got eaten by a big fish, which is a slight warning not to do what God says. He gets spewed up, and eventually he does what God is asking him to do, and he goes to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were really evil. They were awful people, miserable people. And Jonah was quite excited by his message, because Jonah's message was, God's going to give you 40 days, and then he's going to zap you because you're so bad. You know, Jonah's kind of a typical Christian. Yeah, we'll get him. And he's well happy about the message. And he goes and he gives them the message, and would you Adam and Eve it? The Ninevites go, okay, we'll change. Okay, we'll change. And maybe I can find the verse, because I'm all over the place here, as you might have gathered. Here we go. When God saw that the Ninevites went, okay, we'll change, and they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them, and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. How cool is that? 
decades, centuries, years of miserable, intolerable wickedness, and they go, okay, well, we've got the message, thanks Jonah. And God goes, okay, I've got compassion on them. This is mercy, not judgment. That's chapter 3, great celebration, God forgives them. How does chapter 4 of Jonah end? Jonah, as miserable as sin, that God should forgive him. And we go on at God like he's not very forgiving, and the point of Jonah is God's way more forgiving than we are. Hold things over people all the time, and God goes, okay, if you're sorry, you turn around, I'll forgive you. And off they go. That's what God's like. And so we've got to get it into context. We've got to talk about God's judgment, because he's not going to leave things undone. But let's not get carried away with all the stupid ideas that we have about it. The message of Jonah is not look out for fish, it's look out for the compassion and the grace of God. It'll bite you on the behind. Don't get caught out by it. Don't end up being miserable because you choose to live outside his grace and outside of his forgiveness. But know at the end of the day, God's judgment is real. It's real, it will come. It will come if people don't turn. It will come if people don't turn. Back to Malachi chapter 4. Let's just skip a few verses that you can read about at your leisure on the web. Back to Malachi chapter 4. Here we go. The day is coming. The day is coming. The day is And great celebration. Because they wanted the day. You see, it's not a question for Malachi and it's not a question for us whether God's going to come. God will come to this church. Really, he will. God will come, absolutely certain God will come. The question is whether he'll come to revive us or to bring his judgment. That's the question. That's what Malachi said to the people. He said, hey, God's coming. Don't make no mistake about it. Make no mistake at all. But will that coming be judgment or revival? You see, the truth is this. If God doesn't come and revive us, a day will come when he'll come to judge us. It's not very funny, is it? You cannot escape it in God's word. If he doesn't come to revive us, a day will come when he'll judge us. Thank God that he's slow, hey? That he's merciful. Thank God that he weeps over our faults and our failings, our apathy and our lack of faith. Thank God for all those things about Jesus that we saw as he looked over Jerusalem that day. It's a sobering fact. And what we see is a universal truth, not just for Malachi. Arthur Wallace wrote about it. He wrote quite profoundly, I think, that God's judgment is the solemn alternative to revival. Charles Finney, who knew a lot about God reviving the church, wrote, revival is indispensable to avert the judgments of God from the church. The fact is, Christians are more to blame for not being revived than sinners are for not being converted. Cheeky. And if Christians are not awakened, they may know assuredly that God will visit them with his judgments. It goes on, how often God visited the Jewish church with judgments because they would not repent and be revived at the call of his prophets. At the end of the Bible, there are seven churches talked about in the book of Revelation. 
Seven churches that Jesus sends a message to. Now, five of those churches, at least, out of the seven, were in spiritual decline. Okay, so they'd had their heyday. They'd been revived and and, and been a great blessing and all that. And and they were in this in-between time again. They'd kind of lost their way. And they're in spiritual decline. And the same kind of message goes to each of these five churches. And the message is this, essentially. There will be no revival without repentance. And if there is no revival, judgment will come. That's the message in different ways to all five of those seven churches. So if you look at the church of Ephesus, for example, here's the judgment. I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Then there's an opportunity, verse 5, to do something about it. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Turn around, repent, and do the things you did at first. Remember the heights. Remember the glory days when the power of God was living and moving through you and you were full of that first love and joy in Christ. Go back. You can go back to that place. You can go back to that place. But if you do not go back to that place, if you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I'll remove... The lampstand was a sign of God's presence. Imagine a big, massive lampstand, metaphorically in our church here, as a sign of God's presence. I'll come and remove it. Is there a judgment more severe than God removing his presence from us? Hello? Hello? Do you know what happened? The church at Ephesus died. They didn't pay any attention. It was wiped off the map. It doesn't exist. Because one day, as they were carrying on in their own sweet way, ignoring this call to repentance, ignoring the opportunity for God to come in revival, the Spirit of God quietly went into that community one day and took the lampstand away. And no one noticed. There was no great outcry. It didn't go on the front of the grapevine. Quietly, just God's presence slipped away. And the church was fatally wounded. And it was just a question of time before it died. Maybe you know churches like that. All sorts of reasons churches come to an end, don't get me wrong. But sometimes, quietly, the lampstand got removed and no one noticed. Just a question of time before it died. God's coming. God's coming. I think we can be absolutely sure about that. Question is, what kind of coming will it be? Surely the day is coming. What kind of day will it be for us? As Jesus wept over Jerusalem, I think God still weeps, don't you? Jerusalem was the church. It wasn't wasn't the world. It was his people, essentially. He weeps over them because he longs to come and bring his healing, his forgiveness, and his blessing. He longs that they might be the healing to the nations, which we'll look at next week. Hey, if you're pretty down in the boots now, come back next week. It gets better. But we need to hear it, don't we? It's not a game, is it? It's not a game. It's the world out there that desperately needs the church to be revived. As I've said before, I'm going to say it again, they need this church to be revived much more than we do. Hey, we're going to heaven. Big knees up there. We can wait till heaven. This world can't. Let's pray.